Well, the bird's out of the bag. It turns out that Swan is now a mining company, and they have nearly 1% of the network hash rate right now with equipment that they've picked up, I guess, during the bear market. This is quite the black swan event. Oh, oh. I will admit, kind of impressive that they've managed to get to nearly 1%. I mean, that's more than ocean. And they say they have the equipment in hand already to ramp up to 8 exahash. Wow, if they're already at nearly 1% at 4.5 exahash, that's going to be pretty notable. They're now a mining company. There is some inside goss that basically Swan saw an opportunity and jumped on it. And apparently their mining team is super experienced. So if in terms of the operational side, the rumor is that they're very well positioned. At the same time, you pointed out that a few years ago, Corey, the CEO at Swan Bitcoin, was actually giving River, another Bitcoin company that does an exchange business and a mining business, flack. And back then, Corey's view was sort of stay in your lane. You try to do two things. You're going to dilute your product. And who knows what the regulatory impact is. So do you think something has changed that makes Swan and Corey more interested in mining? Or do you think it's just opportunistic? You know, maybe he's maybe he's reevaluated and feels like that regulatory risk that River faced has passed. I think he also saw an opportunity here with this bear market. You got to figure the money's probably coming from somewhere. Maybe Tether wants to be involved in a mining arm. And so, I mean, this is total speculation, but perhaps it was a deal that just seemed to make a lot of sense. Get the equipment at bear market prices, have a person that's willing to cut the checks. And it solves one other problem for Swan as a brand. The number one criticism you'd see people throw around on social media is, why are you even using Swan? It's just a UI sitting on top of a DCA. You don't need to use it. It's just a UI, which Swan always, I think, didn't take well, because there's a lot of tech that they do, a lot of work that they do behind the scenes. And so I think they always felt like that was a crappy criticism. Well, you can't say that anymore. You literally cannot say that because now they're a mining company. And just by the numbers, they're a mining company now. This is the Bitcoin Dad Pod recorded on January 26, 2024. I'm your Bitcoin Dad, and I'm here remotely as always with... It's me. Hey, it's Chris. Welcome in, everybody. Hey, sorry for missing a week. Life got in the way, but now we're back. On today's show, we're going to discuss the COPA lawsuit, which is basically the legal case that will determine whether or not Craig Stephen Wright can continue to call himself Satoshi Nakamoto and sue Bitcoin developers. In economics, there are signs of liquidity stress as Chinese stocks suffer as bank lending falls. In ETF news, the ghost of FTX is still haunting the BTC price as FTX market sold about a billion dollars of Grayscale's Bitcoin ETF shares. And Bitwise has become the first US spot Bitcoin ETF to disclose their BTC holding addresses, allowing some sort of on-chain proof of reserves. Not really necessary because it's an ETF. We kind of trust that they probably have it because they're regulated, but good to know, I suppose. In privacy, Trez Azor has issued a warning. There is yet another phishing email from their compromised email list. So you better watch out for that if you're getting email from Trezor. In altcoins, I found a couple articles about Tether that are very in the Tether FUD camp, but also raise some interesting questions about what Tether is doing with their loan portfolio. I mean, they're definitely printing money with their loan portfolio. The question is, is that a problem? What effects it has? And then in Bitcoin education, the recent Bitcoin Optech covers a consensus failure on the BTCD Bitcoin 
client implementation. And I think it's kind of interesting to contrast that with a recent consensus failure in Ethereum and how Bitcoin's consensus model is is actually much safer in terms of failures than Ethereum's model. And then we have some feedback and boosts, and that's our show. All right. Okay. Well, see, that's a lot of show. I think we should start with the Craig news. Uh, Fake Toshi has been making what seems like settlement offers, both to COPA and also to individual, quote, developers, if they so choose. Craig says it's coming from a position of strength and uh, confidence that he's making the settlement offers. And Craig is a documented serial liar. And this is, of course, a lie. If you really want to dig into the meat of the Craig Wright story and get lost in the weeds, I would definitely recommend the Dr. Bitcoin podcast, which has been covering the Craig Wright story for quite some time. And they've even been on the show once before. And essentially, Craig Wright has been pretending to be Satoshi for a long time. He faked a Satoshi key signing session with Gavin Andreessen, as in he called Gavin Andreessen when Gavin was still the lead Bitcoin core maintainer and called him over to England and performed this fake signing ceremony with hacked software to try and demonstrate that he was Satoshi. But it was very suspect even then. I mean, why did he have to come to England? You know, if you can sign a Satoshi message, a Satoshi block, just sign it and send it to me. I can verify it with my own note. It's no big deal. But Craig has always made that into a big deal. And he's been ever since, and I think this was, was this in 2014 that he did the signing? I can't remember. He's been suing Bitcoin developers. And and essentially his scam is he wants to create a legal precedent that he's Satoshi Nakamoto, and he wants to prove it using fabricated documents in a court of law so that he can essentially copyright Bitcoin and potentially force exchanges and large Bitcoin companies to promote his Bitcoin fork called Bitcoin Satoshi Vision as Bitcoin. And so kind of confuse the market and make billions in the process. And that's why he's been such an aggressive legal nuisance, suing Bitcoin developers, suing people on Twitter who say he's a fraud. And he always sues them in a jurisdiction where there's a high burden of proof to accuse someone of fraud. Well, now he has been sued by COPA, which stands for the Something Open Source Patent Alliance, which covers patents. I think it's coalition. Coalition, which is the coalition of open source patent. Wait, does that make sense? Coalition of crypto, the crypto open source patent alliance. Yeah, yeah. And COPA's goal is to basically make sure that any of its members who have patents around cryptocurrency don't enforce them to sort of sue other projects. The the goal is to sort of keep crypto, of course, we hate the term, open source and free of sort of legal patent lawsuits. Think of Oracle as a bad example of that. Exactly. We saw similar things develop in the Linux and open source community when patent trolls started suing Linux distributions and companies shipping Linux. Right. And Craig's entire goal is to be a Bitcoin slash crypto patent troll that can just sue people and get them to settle with him and print money by being a legal nuisance while contributing nothing of value to the world, the crypto space, etc. Well, this lawsuit is essentially a lawsuit around whether or not Craig really is Satoshi because he's claimed to be Satoshi, but he's never actually been willing to legally prove it in court. And now there is a suit where he has to prove it in court, but it seems like there might be some problems with his case. It seems the COPA lawyers have gone through the quote-unquote evidence that uh, Craig recently found because the old evidence turned out to be forged. But then Craig found new evidence that he swears is not forged, except for the problem is, is it appears to be, quote, overwhelmingly forged, end quote. 
Wow. The problem is, is that he provided them like a copy of the white paper, which was originally published October 31st, 2008, as we all know. Wright claims that he wrote the Bitcoin white paper using LaTeX, which is a word processing software, which is pretty cool. It's like really geeky and you you build it and you actually compile the document. Shout out to Crypto Kyle, who's got his documents in LaTeX. <laughs> Does he? Okay, good. Good for you, Kyle. Keep it alive. Keep it going. I'm sure it'll, it'll grow soon. Um, but it's verifiable that the white paper that Craig Wright produced wasn't available. The, I'm sorry. The white paper that Craig Wright produced used technology that wasn't available until 2009, a year after the original white paper. And we know the original white paper was produced in OpenOffice, not LaTeX, because you can tell in the meta- metadata, Satoshi used OpenOffice of all things. It wasn't very sophisticated. And that's funny because this is classic Craig Wright. He always sort of lies and and tries to promote himself and tries to suggest that he's super technical, but then he's foiled by small details because he's not a detail-oriented person, which is one of the first giveaways that he's not Satoshi. And Wright asserted that he created these files. He was the sole possession of these files since their origination, which means he would be aware of their inauthenticity, like somebody didn't create them and give them to him. But the metadata and the technology used in this version of LaTeX, it just wasn't around when the white paper was created. It fundamentally wasn't possible. And this is a little different than Craig's previous forgeries, because in previous cases, he always has maintained these ridiculous arguments that, oh, this document came from a person who I don't know and I didn't check the authenticity, but I submitted it into the docket. So I don't know if it's authentic, but let's treat it like it is. So there was always some deniability if something was found to be fake. But for this lawsuit, he had to claim that this is directly from me and it's never been tampered with. And it has, right. And so, and outside of just the, just the latex issue and all of that, uh, he also provided a quote, 2007 time capsule, um, which he claimed had never been tampered with. However, uh, when forensic experts went through it, they saw there was deleted files that had been done at some point in September of 2023, but the modifications were done with the computer clock manually set back to the 31st of October, 2007 to try to backdate the, uh, digital artifacts, as they put it. And then, of course, they ran a, a recovery on those deleted files. And uh, oh, you just couldn't even make this up, dude. Uh, a deleted file that was recovered suggests that fabricated evidence that was presented by Wright was generated with the help of ChatGPT. The deleted file contained part of a content of a document Wright provided that began with the words, quote, certainly, here's the latex code for Section 7, which covers recommendations, quote. Expert witnesses recreated this exact response from ChatGPT by asking, are you able to output some template latex code for section seven, which relates to recommendations. And they got the exact results. They had a list of 20 forgeries that they submitted to the court. And uh, COPA, I'll link to it, has posted them online. The oral arguments open on February 5th, 2024, just a few days away. And as icing on the cake, Peter McCormack has reported that Craig's final appeal against the decision that went against Craig in the Peter McCormack case has also been denied. So the funny thing about Craig Wright and the poor fools who've been brainwashed into believing he's Satoshi is that he's never won a legal case. None of the cases he's won have resulted in his victory. He's always lost, but he's claimed that it's part of some grand 5D chess strategy to sort of lose cases and then win a big case and turn it all around. And that's just not how law works. You never want to lose a lawsuit. You always want to win. Yeah, hopefully this is just about over. You know, um, 
And then no, there's really not going to be another one of these after this, I suspect. I think this is the age of the project and all of that. This is sort of the last hurrah and this is the best we got. And uh, I look forward to February 5th. And you know, Craig, what's great is Craig's trying to claim that this offer to settle before February 5th is a is a position of strength and that by declining it, that's truly going to be his ultimate death blow stroke once he presents his new, new evidence. Well, we will be waiting for that new evidence, Craig, not new, new. New, new. But I mean, finally, he's been put in a situation where it's not a civil, I mean, I, I guess it's a civil case, but the actual question that's being litigated is, is Craig able to prove he's Satoshi without the use of forgeries? And so hopefully there will finally be some penalties for his decade of legal shenanigans and slap suits. Because while he's a clown, he has caused real harm to Bitcoin developers because he goes after actual people. And I think we can attest that the sort of people who perform the service of creating open source code are not the kind of people who enjoy being personally attacked and dragged into the limelight. These are introverted nerds who are being bullied by a psychopath named Craig Wright. And potentially doxxed in some cases. So it's great that this campaign of intimidation may be finally coming to an end. So Chris, are we headed for a soft landing? Apparently there's a red hot jobs market in the US, or do you think that there might be another economic outcome over the course of this year? What's your sense? You know, a few years ago, Janet Yellen said, we'll never have another economic crisis in my lifetime. And everybody's mocked her for that. But I've been rethinking that quote recently in my head. And maybe she was right in the sense that the Fed will always manipulate different aspects of the market to try to mitigate the depth, uh, you know, maybe the magnitude of a disaster. They're always like when COVID, when the COVID lockdowns were announced uh, and we had that massive market crash, the way they stepped in or Silicon Valley Bank, that could have led to a massive collapse. But the way they jumped in and, you know, managed those banks, um, I think until we have something much larger happen, they're just going to be able to spin plates. And they'll be able to do it for years. Or possibly change the definition because we had a technical recession. Was it in 2022? But it was not a recession. It was just a technical recession. Good point. That's a, I think that also is at play here. Um, and because, you know, my argument, you know, you and I talk about this off air too, is I argue that there is a large percentage of Americans who are still going through a 2008 recession. They, you know, when you drive through the middle of the country, it's never been the same since 2008. So for some people, we're in a recession already. Um, I know that I'm still... I'm feeling more and more financially exhausted as time goes on. Um, you know, like our, uh, our insurance rates just went up on our cars and on our RV. And I need to come up with an extra $500 out of nowhere. And now these things keep happening and it's getting harder and harder to accommodate these random $500. So that, that expense might actually go on a credit card, which is horrible, but this is where I'm at right now. And if other Americans are feeling this, this is going to lead to some kind of problem. It already has, because we were discussing earlier how there are all of these political no-win situations where you're trying to solve a local problem, like say homelessness or you know, maybe due to the migration from the southern border, there are sort of uh, my, you know, immigrants, migrants in your community, and they're on the street and they need some support. And when local or federal government tries to intervene and do something for them, there's often a backlash. And I don't think it's just sort of xenophobia. I think there's a, there's a sense that, well, hold on, how come these people are getting a handout? I'm struggling over here and I haven't gotten anything. That comes out of a prolonged, silent 
depression in certain parts of the world economy and society. But what I want to bring up is an, an interesting article on Bloomberg about the Chinese stock market. So I was present in China when the Shanghai stock market was absolutely ripping in 2017. And uh, everyone was trading stocks. It was your classic stock bubble. I had a, a friend who's a, who was a, a forklift driver in a, in a factory I would visit, and he would always give me stock tips. And his wife was, you know, tr day trading all day and everyone was making money. And then this uh, stock bubble collapsed and most people who were involved, especially retail, lost a lot of money. And the government intervened and kind of froze the stock market. And then they had a lot of interventions that we would be familiar with in the US, like circuit breakers that prevent the stock market from dropping by more than a certain percentage in uh, 15 minutes or over a couple hours or something like that. So an attempt to, to manage the crisis and control the market more. But despite these interventions, the Chinese stock market has been edging lower uh, over the years, but especially since um, June of last year. And what you can kind of see from the data is that while Chinese industrial output has recovered from the sharp decline of the COVID pandemic, retail sales, consumer consumption has just never recovered. And it's on a completely different lower trajectory. And I think this is pretty consistent with the fact that the Chinese real estate bubble has been unwinding and real estate has been the major savings vehicle of regular Chinese citizens over the past 20 years. And so when your real estate prices fall and you're underwater on your apartment that you're you're living in, but you're also kind of using as a savings vehicle, your savings have decreased. You have less assets and you cut spending accordingly. Another trend is that there have been actual policies to reduce bank lending to prevent speculation in real estate and other sort of financial bubbles. And as we know on this podcast, bank lending is money creation and money creation is part of economic expansion in our current economic model. So what I'm getting at is just that China does not appear to be coming out of their economic problems. The situation there seems to be accelerating to the downside as indicated by low retail sales and lack of bank lending. And without growth in China, I would argue that there is not global growth. It's actually sort of impossible to have growth in the US and Europe without China as a consumer of raw materials and a provider of low-cost manufactured goods. So I think this is kind of the backdrop of whatever economic issues we're experiencing in our home countries, because ever since the 2008 crisis, China's expansionary fiscal policies, which resulted in a huge amount of infrastructure being built, some of it cool, like high-speed trains using technology that was transferred, quote-unquote, from Japan. Also, a lot of it was not cool, like China, I think, currently has something around the order of 3 billion residential units were built in China or have been built by last year. And since the Chinese population is significantly less than 2 billion, well, wh who's going to live in all of these units? You know, there's like more apartments in China than individual people living there. You're going to have an apartment for the mom, an apartment for the dad, an apartment for the baby? Of course not. That's ridiculous. I'm seeing a problem and a solution. We got people that need homes. They got homes that need people. Right. Let's make a deal here. <laughs> yeah, that would be the solution, right? Just uh, immigrate <laughs> to China. Yeah. They're also not so keen on immigration. Oh, okay.
So it's an interesting read if you want to get a sense of the milieu over there. But I don't like to play the day-to-day stock market and economic news prognostications just because you, you know I've tried in the past and always been wrong. So I think it's more useful to sort of look at these longer-term trends and, and, and sort of see a probable trajectory for yeah. the economy. So in other words, zoom out is what you're saying. Right. And I think the important thing is just to have in the back of your mind, if there is a sense that you're being told via the news or or wherever you get your sort of economic forecast that things are great and you should just go for it and spend. I mean, at the back of your mind, I think, you, you know, I would be thinking, well, it doesn't look that good globally. Maybe I don't want to buy that new car with a lot of leverage. You know, maybe I don't want to add to my expenses. And so I, I just bring up this sort of stuff because as a regular person, I think it's easy to buy into a popular narrative and then get hurt because the world just ain't the way you think it is and you made the wrong decisions. And so, I, you know, this is just sort of a, a cautionary observation. Yeah, you always got to check in with the fundamentals and the long-term trend. Well, just when we thought we were all done talking about FTX, it turns out it's still haunting us Bitcoiners and it's in the form of cashing out on the ETF. The folks that are now running FTX sold about 1 billion of the Grayscale Bitcoin ETF since its approval. And uh, in fact, I think the number's up almost to 2 billion coming out of the Grayscale Bitcoin trust in total. So half of that has been just FTX. There was a lawsuit between Alameda Research and Grayscale or something to this effect. And uh, I think this is how they gained their payoff because after this news went public, they dropped the lawsuit. And uh, a lot of the sales are getting gobbled up by BlackRock and Fidelity. It's kind of been interesting to see as these Bitcoin get sold, the coffers of Grayscale, they're they're sucking up Bitcoin like a Hoover vacuum. Overall, FTX sold more than two thirds of their GBTC stake in just three days. It's kind of amazing that Bitcoin didn't go down to 30,000 with that kind of price action. And while this is happening, Vijay Boyapati is also alleging that DCG, Digital Currency Group, which is the parent company of the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust, also engaged in fraud due to the relationship of these two entities. What is he talking about here and why is it coming out now? Oh, dad, this thread is, well, it's long. It's like 30 tweets long, but it lays out all of the interconnected corruption between DCG, Three Arrows Capital, FTX, and Alameda Group, and how they were all kind of moving money in between. And the weird kind of suggested behind the scenes bacon that people are frying, I'm not saying this is my theory, but the speculation is, is that perhaps there was kind of a quiet deal made with the SEC and the other regulators all along that GBTC would come in, they'd have a high premium, they would just have a massive exodus, and the other ETFs to make the market fair and balanced would get to soak most of that up. And that's how they made it fair for everybody. And that's how they avoided some of these legal troubles. And perhaps that's why these lawsuits are getting dropped now, is this is all kind of in the works. And, you know, even with a massive 30% exodus of GBTC, they're still one of gonna be, they're gonna be the lar- one of the largest funds. They're still going to be making a great premium. And BlackRock and Fidelity and Bitwise snapped most of it up and it's all kind of balanced out. So the, the, the suggestion is, is that perhaps there was some sort of smoky backroom deal facilitated by the SEC for this exact eventuality. And it's coming back to me now because the GBTC arbitrage trade was based on the fact that because there weren't ETFs and sort of institutional access to Bitcoin, the best you could do was GBTC. And because it wasn't an ETF, there wasn't a good mechanism 
to make sure that the shares and the underlying Bitcoin trade at the same price. And when Bitcoin goes into GBTC, it gets stuck there, it gets locked there, essentially. So there was this trade, the GBTC ARB trade, where you would send Bitcoin into the GBTC trust, and then you'd get shares out of the trust in six months, because there was this sort of unlocking period. When you got those shares, you could sell them and you would receive a premium as long as the Bitcoin price went up and the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust shares were trading at a premium to the underlying Bitcoin. And this was kind of your classic one-way trade. Plan B was talking about how you could print money with this thing. Three Arrows Capital, which was a hedge fund that turned into a scam, was big on this trade and got blown up on it. BlockFi was big on this trade and got blown up on it. And Genesis Capital, which was another company that was owned by the DCG Group, was also lending customer money to Three Arrows and other participants so they could speculate on the GBTC trade. And that's really interesting because Genesis was making money lending, you know, because they charged an interest rate. But also when Bitcoin go into the Grayscale Trust, they had a very high management fee. So basically, it looks like Barry Silbert was controlling these two subsidiary companies to coordinate a trade that benefited the parent company, and maybe or maybe not, that's illegal. And I just think it's fun that this is, and we don't want to forget this as the ETFs are here, because Barry Silbert seems to have been kind of a naughty guy on this. And a lot of people at, uh, gosh, what is the Bill Winklevi's exchange? Oh, Gemini. They got totally wrecked on this trade because Gemini had a crypto earn product where they were just, you know, you like get a little pop up in your app that would say, hey, you want to make some extra money on your crypto? And if you pressed yes, they would send your crypto to Genesis, who would then lend it to Three Arrows Capital, who would then speculate on GBDC and all sorts of other stuff. And then all the crypto disappeared, surprisingly. Yeah, what a mess. And it's it's really been a bear market of unwinding all this stuff. And perhaps this GBTC getting converted to an ETF is kind of the the final whammy. You know, that's a lot of product that got moved onto the market. So availability was high for a bit. But now that that's been exhausted, I wonder. We're also 10 days in now to these ETFs, which means the excitement and hype is kind of fading. They're still doing very well. According to James on Twitter, volumes and flows are slowing down. We had an overall negative day of flows, but total net flows stand at 744 million, with IBIT likely to cross 2 billion assets today as we record. And I think something else, speaking of Bitwise, that's been really notable is out of all of these ETFs, 11, Bitwise has become the first spot Bitcoin to disclose its actual holding address. And the reason why this is significant is now any pleb can check the balance and verify that they're holding the funds they claim to be holding. Now, Bitcoiners on Twitter were freaking out because it's a legacy address. It's not a multi-sig and all of that, forgetting that Coinbase is a clown coin company and they haven't invested in proper Bitcoin infrastructure. But to their credit, they don't seem to lose Bitcoin either. Still a historical moment. I've heard the inside baseball on the Coinbase address. Apparently, Coinbase uses multi-party computation to do some kind of proprietary Samir secret sharing to create shards that then are reconstructed into a single key Bitcoin address. Okay, so why do they do that instead of Bitcoin native on-chain multisig? The answer is because most of the altcoins do not have on-chain multisig, and if they do, it's different than Bitcoins. But every chain has single-sig, private-key, public-key-based addresses. And so they can use this MPC technology for Bitcoin, Ethereum, Tron, whatever. They don't have to change the backend depending on the coin. The 
The problem with NPC, of course, is that I don't think that there is an open source verifiable alternative to using Coinbase's special sauce. So you don't really know like, okay, Coinbase hasn't lost money, but you don't really know what's going on with this MPC computation. And just to sort of describe it simply, what they're doing is on chain, it's a single signature Bitcoin address, but they're using a cryptographic scheme based on Shamir's secret sharing to basically take that Bitcoin private key and break it up into chunks that you then have to assemble in a very specific way to sign transactions. And so they can kind of shard the key on the back end so that they can do kind of distributed custody, like maybe Brian Armstrong has a key, maybe the CTO has a key, whatever. I mean, obviously, Brian's not signing transactions, but they don't have to just have a single hot private key on a computer somewhere. They have shards that sort of act like multi-sig, but instead of signing transactions and having it kind of confirmed that the multi-sig spend is valid on the blockchain, what they're doing is they're assembling these shards into a single private key that can then sign a transaction. And so from the Bitcoin on-chain perspective, it's a single SIG address, but on the back end, they're effectively using multiple keys with this scheme. So now what happens as uh, these dumb plebs send sats at this address? Because that's exactly what people are doing. They're sending ordinals and they're sending, you know, 420 sats and 69, 69, 69 sats at this ETF address. What happens to those sats in that setup? It's an over-collateralized ETF now. I guess they should maybe issue some shares. I don't know who gets them. <laughs> no, it's funny. Eric B on Twitter says, I'm pretty sure, this, he's from Bloomberg, uh, I think, says, I'm pretty sure this is the first ETF. Someone donated the underlying asset it to the fund. It's never a dull moment, I swear. It's pretty funny, actually. I wonder if they can claim that Elizabeth Warren JPEG that was sent to that address. That'd be amazing. What happens if somebody sends some, you know, OFAC sanction coins over there? Then what happens? I mean, that's going to happen. 100% that's going to happen. I predict what we'll start to see is, I don't know if anybody else is going to publish their Bitcoin address because honestly, Bitwise has got nothing but crap for doing this. I think it's neat. And it occurred to me that it'd be pretty cool to just check in on this address from time to time. But I wonder if we'll see anybody else do it. I think it's less probable now. But perhaps the next move for a group like Bitwise to be competitive or whoever else is to move off of Coinbase. Maybe in a year or so, they start building their own custody. Maybe, you know, if this product is successful, they determine it's a winner, then they start building their own custody infrastructure and they move off of Coinbase perhaps. And they make that as a differentiator. I think it would just depend on the fees because these ETFs are pretty competitively priced. So they're just going to need to make a difference between their management fee and the total cost of operating the ETF. And I think custody is a big part of that cost. So if you can roll your own custody and have it be legally compliant and it's cheaper than Coinbase, then people will do it. But I think at the end of the day, it's just going to be about the fee to get legally compliant custody for the ETF coins. My last thought on this, but it also means it won't be too long before these banks are knocking on Coinbase's door saying, we need you to reduce your cut because the fees are getting competitive. We've got to lower our rates. Coinbase, you need to take less of a cut, right? I think that's the direction this goes in for Coinbase long term. I was telling you earlier that a family member of mine recently got fished by receiving a text message from reportedly a bank and then clicking on it and talking to someone and downloading something. And as a result, I now have their computer in my office and I'm trying to recover their data. The same apparently is happening for Trezor users. Another embarrassing story where customer information, even though it isn't their Bitcoin address, can still be used to go after people's funds. And it's another example of these companies that get involved in this highly sensitive area and they don't protect the customer data appropriately. Because it's just a mailing, just a mailing list. list. Just, just a, a mailing, mailing list. list. What's the big deal? Yeah. 
Well, now we know. Now we know what the big deal is, right? And it's, uh, I think also, uh, I don't, I, I wouldn't even want people to know that I own this product because it just, I don't need them to know that information. It's private information. It kind of invites violence into your life if you have a hardware wallet that everyone knows you have, right? I present Exhibit A. And so there is a phishing email going out that purports to be from Satoshi Labs, which is the parent company behind Trezor. And they are saying they're upgrading their Bitcoin and Ethereum and some other coin addresses. And so you have to click on this link to download the new wallet. And I'm pretty sure if you download that wallet and load your private key, you're going to lose all your coins. So you definitely never want to click on a link in an email. And if you see a suspicious email like that, you know, go to your browser, Google search for the website it purports to be from, look through their blog. Is there anything on their blog? Look through the downloads. Is there a new download? You know, you can you can verify this yourself. You don't have to do cryptographic verification to figure out that you're being fished. So you just want to take the time and take things slow. And if you're ever upgrading your Bitcoin wallet, that's kind of a big deal. You know, you really want to slow that down and not make any fast decisions and verify everything before you install. Yes, indeed. This is so fraught that I don't know, just after talking about the ETF, I can see why people that just don't want to deal with this are going to just be sort of funneled into a custodial product. But hopefully as we learn these lessons now, we'll get this thing refined and people that are interested will be able to have access to good self-custody tools. They're out there. It's just the market's working itself out. I so Chris, how do you feel about Tether FUD? Do you like to Tether FUD? Do you think it's an attack on Bitcoin? How do you think about this sort of general space of criticism that's usually about Bitcoin, where the argument is Bitcoin's not real because actually the value is driven entirely by printed tethers that are just printed out of thin air and then they go and buy Bitcoin and that's why it's all a Ponzi scheme. Well, I'll tell you, my my view of Tether has begun to shift over time. I think two years ago, I was extremely skeptical. I even thought potentially in the next bear market, we might see Tether blow up. And I was actually thinking maybe that'd be a good thing. As time has gone on and Tether has survived the deepest, longest bear market we've ever seen, I guess I've begun to shift my view a little bit. I think also because you and others have made the case that stable coins are a clear market fit and they're not going away. And there is obvious demand, such obvious demand for stable coins in countries that are experiencing massive native currency inflation. So I think I've begun to shift as they've survived and as they seem to become a more serious player over time. I still remain skeptical and would never hold a large percentage of my money in Tether. I might hold a few thousand dollars, but probably not anything beyond that. Right, because Tether is a token on a blockchain. And then Bitcoin is also a token on a blockchain. But the difference is that a central issuer creates these Tether tokens and claims that they're backed by something. And the backing of the Tether, the fact that it's tied to some kind of quote unquote real world asset, constrains their ability to issue them in theory. Of course, they're not constrained. They could just issue as many as they want. But in this narrative, we can believe that there is an incentive for Tether to not hyperinflate the supply of Tethers because maybe they are under some kind of legal restriction or, or constraint, and maybe they want to have a sustainable business or something like that. But at the end of the day, you have to trust Tether not to screw you up. And Tether is, in many ways, a, just a super problematic company with a super problematic past. I mean, the founder of Tether is a failed plastic surgeon uh, and also a, like a small-time digital scammer. I mean, the, the personalities involved with Tether, if you just looked at the list of their executive team, you'd say, well, this looks like a, not a group of people that would be very trustworthy. And they have 
violated their customers' trust, I think. I mean, you know, if you were just naively using Tether at certain points in history, they have had no backing for the Tether because there was a period when their payment processor, which was a super shady Central American company that also laundered money for criminal enterprises, was seized by the U.S. government and $850 million of Tether's funds were frozen. I mean, should the U.S. government have given those funds to Tether? Uh, Maybe, maybe not. I don't know. I mean, was that fair? I don't know. But at that moment, instead of calling up everyone and saying, okay, Tether's over, they faked it till they made it. And they seem to have somehow made it and achieved scale and become the largest stablecoin issuer in the world. So why bring up Tether? Why am I fighting Tether at this moment? I thought there was a really interesting series of articles from Dirty Bubble Media, which I think has a pretty anti-crypto point of view, but as far as I know, their analysis is accurate. And what they did was they got an insider at Tether to give them some information about Tether's on-chain addresses on Tron, where they do the majority of their issuance. And they combined this with some testimony from Alex Mashinsky, who is the CEO of the Celsius Ponzi scheme. And the interesting thing is that Tether lent Mashinsky and Celsius billions of tethers. And this was backed against some kind of crypto collateral. Well, if you're providing some collateral and receiving more tethers or more dollars in exchange, that's money creation. I mean, that's a bank. Tether is a shadow bank. It's a unregistered entity that engages in lending. And they're open about this. They claim that their tether issuance is backed by all sorts of assets, including US Treasury bills. Also, in the past, it has been backed by some Chinese commercial paper. So that real estate crisis in China that's exploding, Tether was at some point exposed to that paper that is now worthless. And so maybe they got out of it, maybe they didn't, it's not super clear. But they also have these secured loans to non-affiliated entities. And so using a comment from Alex Mashinsky, where he said, if you give them enough collateral, liquid collateral, Bitcoin, Ethereum, and so on, they will mint Tether against it. New USD is issued for such loans and later destroyed when the loan is closed. So it does not permanently increase USDT in circulation. Yeah, good job, Alex. You've described how bank lending works. So they observed that there is a address on Tron that appears to be the interest collection address for Tether on Tron. And so interest is paid into this address, and then Tethers are sent to Bitfinex, where they redistribute them or something. The interesting observation is that the numbers of interest payments and activity on chain sort of matches Tether's attestations up to 2021 or in 2021, but then they start to wildly diverge later. And so obviously Tether could have multiple addresses on on-chain that are not being captured in the data. So this might be entirely innocent. On the other hand, it does seem that on-chain activity relating to interest paid on Tether's secured loans does not match their attestations. Everyone was expecting Tether to go under and suffer massive outflows. And then they did for a bit. And then suddenly they started issuing more Tethers and everything was fine and they were going like gangbusters. So I wonder if this is something worth looking into to see if, okay, maybe Tether has more addresses, maybe their attestations and their claims of having all of these loans outstanding are accurate, or maybe this is a part of their balance sheet that they feel comfortable lying about because it's hard to prove the existence of these assets. Yeah, the more you know, right? In other words, remain skeptical. It's a black box. 
It's like a lot of companies that I've worked with over the years, they can have all this dysfunction and all these problems, but as long as there's a strong market for their product, it kind of just papers over all these flaws. And I think we're entering into a macro bull trend demand for U.S. dollars. And for a lot of people all around the world, or, you know, Tether is the closest equivalent they can get to that. Right. And Tether was super useful for mainland Chinese people who needed to move money out of China and were constrained by capital restrictions. And whether it will and whether that demand will continue where people in where people in economies with capital restrictions will need a technology to to sort of throw dollars over the wall to get them into safer jurisdictions. Will they go to Tether for that? Will Tether be able to provide the same sort of pseudo anonymous kind of gray area transfer in the future with their new relationships with the US Secret Service and FBI who have access to some data from Tether and can ask Tether to freeze addresses for them. In that situation, will Tether still be as trusted and as useful? I don't know, but it definitely bears watching because this is an entity that does have the ability to sort of print crypto tokens that are kind of treated like dollars by most entities in the crypto system. And that is a way to potentially manipulate prices. This episode of the Bitcoin Dad Pod, it's brought by my podcast network. Go check out jupiterbroadcasting.com. Self-hosted 115 just came out as we record, and a special guest, Brian Moses, joins us, and he builds a NAS every year. And this year, he built an off-site backup NAS with 20 terabytes of storage for $420. So we'll talk about that and some projects Alex and I are working on, as well as new Coda Radio is out, the App Store Addiction, and episode 546 of Linux Unplugged, what you're missing about NixOS. We bring up a couple of things that I think are just missing from the conversation, even if you plan to never switch. I think it's things you should probably know about. Go check all that at jupiterbroadcasting.com. What on earth is he using as his processor for a 420 all-in system? Well, spoiler, but have you seen these little B-Link mini PCs on Amazon? I have not. Oh, incredible. Like Ryzen systems that are going sometimes on sale for 180, 200 bucks. Full-on modern Ryzen. Yeah, it's nice. I mean, yeah. So anyways, it's all in there. It's all in there. Bitcoin Optech Newsletter 286 discussed a disclosure of a consensus failure in BTCD, which is a less popular Bitcoin client than Bitcoin Core, but I believe it is still used as the sort of library that LND, a popular lightning distribution, uses to do some of their Bitcoin calculations. And so essentially, there is some transaction version number details that could create a consensus mismatch between BTCD and Bitcoin Core. And in the case of a consensus failure, what happens is the two different clients essentially split off into different chains. They can't see each other anymore because they are creating different blocks that are not valid on each other's chains. And in the case of Lightning, if your Lightning client is relying on this sort of broken consensus layer, you could definitely lose funds by inadvertently creating an invalid state. And then when the consensus failure is resolved, you kind of come back to the chain with your partner, who's presumably on the other fork. And now you have some differences in your state from the lightning side that remained on the main fork and you could lose funds. That said, these consensus failures 
they have the potential to create problems for Bitcoin miners, because if they're on the wrong fork, they'd be mining on the wrong fork, and they're not actually receiving Bitcoin. And when the failure is fixed, they're suddenly back on the main chain and all of their work has been invalidated. So that definitely is a risk. But what was interesting is that we also had an Ethereum consensus failure last week, where a less popular Ethereum client, which only has around 8% of stakers using it, I think was briefly uh, you know, on its own chain, and then it was resolved. But this revealed a serious issue with Ethereum consensus, which was, of course, a known issue. But you know, now you have to think about it when you have a consensus failure. Because Ethereum consensus is game theory based, as opposed to cryptographically verifiable using something like proof of work, their protocol actually punishes staking nodes for being offline. Because if it's your time to make a block and you're not there to make a block and we saved a space for you, you know, we need to punish you so that you don't just sort of show up and claim Ethereum and then not remain online. So that, you know, they have a very complicated way of reasoning about how a staking node should behave and the appropriate combination of rewards and penalties to make a staking node behave the way that the developers wanted to. Well, the problem is if you experience a consensus failure, so basically your Ethereum node just is making transactions which other Ethereum nodes are not seeing as valid, your node splits onto a new chain. But on the main chain that presumably has the correct consensus rules, you've actually gone offline. And so depending on how long it takes to resolve that chain split, you're offline and your Ethereum is actually being burned to punish you for being offline. And so consensus failures in Ethereum are potentially much more costly and dangerous because your your actual Ethereum stake that you're using to sort of be a signing node can be burned if the underlying client has a consensus failure, which is just hilarious in my opinion. Yeah, and I suppose, you know, the risk is not necessarily nil when 84% of the validators are using Go Ethereum. Uh, and that's like all the big guys like Lido and Binance. They're all using Go Ethereum one one application. If you found some sort of issue there that caused a disruption in the network, you could have a bunch of validators that get knocked offline and then get their, I mean, maybe, I don't know, get their ETH burned. It just feels really centralized. And when you do that, you risk one giant surface for attacks. Well, I mean, Bitcoin, in a sense, has a similar problem indeed, indeed. or structure in that yeah. most miners and users are using Bitcoin D. Yep. And most Lightning nodes are using LND. You know, and the alternative is you could use Bitcoin Knots, which is Luke Dasher's opinionated implementation. <laughs> very opinionated. You know, no no porn addresses, no ordinals, whatever, no samurai wallet. But, you know, other than that, there's Rust Bitcoin. But if you go to their GitHub, they're saying this is experimental, do not use this. Or there's BTCD, which is no longer being supported because the whole development team went off and made an altcoin. My observation, though, is so like, you know, say we're sticking to the consensus aspect and uh, we took out a bunch of the nodes. Yeah, it would disrupt the network to a degree, right? But you don't have people's sats get burned, right? When there's, So there's a whole level of attack on GoETH where when you disrupt the consensus of the network, potentially, the punishment mechanism kicks in and their ETH gets burned. And I'm just saying like, that doesn't happen on the Bitcoin network. Yeah, it can disrupt and slow things down. Maybe the fees spike for a bit with congestion, right? <laughs> but <laughs> And just because you have smart contracts like decentralized exchanges operating on Ethereum, Consensus changes could cause massive problems with those applications, and you could lose you know, potentially all your money uh, in a situation like that. Who knows? I think the takeaway for me is just that Ethereum consensus seems to have a lot of game theory baked into it. And game theory-based consensus, like the Lightning Network as it is today, is in my view 
much more risky than cryptographic consensus mechanisms. Because with a cryptographic consensus, if there's a problem, then you have some cryptography that then proves the new stake and we're, and we're fine. But with a game theory consensus mechanism, you have a problem, you violate one of the rules and you get slashed or you get punished or you know your lightning partner takes your channel. And so that's why I think that L2, LN symmetry, these upgrades to lightning seem like a very good idea because in addition to reducing the amount of state that you have to hold on your lightning node, which I can testify is getting way too big for you know my setup because your lightning state database grows linearly over time. It's only going to get bigger. With LN symmetry, if you have a consensus failure, you don't have to take the whole channel balance from your partner. You can just publish the updated state and everything's good. So it's much safer for both parties. And I think it uh, would make Lightning easier to use on sort of more intermittent devices where you don't have to worry so much about network connectivity and etc. We'd love to hear what you think, though. Let us know. You can get in touch. Bitcoin DadPod at ProtonMail.com. Or hit us up on Weapon X with a post at Bitcoin Dad Pod on Twitter. Or you can do it in our always going 24-7 Matrix channel. We'll have links to that in the show notes. Or support us with a boost. This is a value for value production. There's a lot of overhead and time spent on this show. So if you get a little value out of the show, please consider boosting in. And we'll read your message on the air. And our first boost is from JCXFNT, who sent in 8,000. 919 sats via fountain. I'm a Bitcoiner and Linux guy and need some input from Chris about Bitcoin plus plus and Nix here or maybe on self-hosted. Haven't dove into Nix yet, but it seems like a tempting intersection. Come see us sometimes in 80919. Cheers. Hello, El Paso in Colorado, El Paso County in Colorado. All right, JC, you got me. I've been thinking about Nix Bitcoin a lot. And I just recently provisioned a box, set aside the hardware that I'm going to dedicate to building Nix Bitcoin on to give it a real go. Because I think ultimately that's where I want to take the JB node and then my personal node. And not that Umbral isn't a great starter, but I think if I'm going to integrate it as like a business tool, I want to have it managed with the Nix tooling. So you read my mind. Thank you for that big baller boost. And I will update probably here on the show. I don't know. I'm going to talk a little bit about it on the Linux Unplugged show too uh, in the live stream for the members, but I'm not sure. I, I try to not overdo the Bitcoin talk in self-hosted because Alex is yet to uh, become a Bitcoiner, so I don't want to uh, bang on and, and bore him with it. But I'm absolutely interested. And I think if Bitcoiners are willing to learn the Nix language and management system, it's a much safer long-term environment to run something like a Bitcoin node. It really does feel like it could be a rock-solid base though ironically it's at the bleeding edge and has a six-month release cycle. For me, the issue has been there are some slightly non-standard things I require, like for instance, a audio editing tool that isn't supported in base Nix. And so those rough edges make it hard for me to use Nix for everything. I still need to have other systems that my tools work on that I have to use sometimes. You just have to come all the way through the Nix wormhole. You see, there is no spoon. And then soon you build your own flakes and you're on the other side of this and you say, the only distro where I can run all the edge case software I want reliably and consistently is an XOS. That's where you'll get, you'll get there. I feel like I've done a lot of self-improvement to use Linux, <laughs> but Nix is asking for so much it's, more. It's, you need to become like a guru, man. I know it's a whole other world. 
I understand. I understand totally. But I'm uh, I'm definitely I'm definitely on it, JC. And thank you for the big baller boost. Appreciate that value. Thank you so much. Nullifier comes in with five thousand sats and says, "Bitcoin meetups are your civic duty." Oh man, Nullifier! I thought this was going to be the episode. I told you I was going to go to a meetup last night, but my recording schedule got moved around, and I'm an old man, and I need to be in bed by nine. I was literally in bed at nine p.m., which is really when the meetup was just going to be getting good. So I did not get to go nullifier, but I am starting to really, it's starting to hit me and I'm going to try to make it to a meetup very soon. Halleck boosts in 10,000 sats with the message boost. Oh, I Thank agree, you. Halleck. That's Thank a great you so point. much, Halleck. Really that's, appreciate the boost. That's wise. That's wise. Thank you, Halleck. Bob, also known as Bob B, comes in with 3,000 sats using Podverse. And Bob writes, I convinced a friend who is into precious metals to pay attention to Bitcoin. He bought some of the uh, Canadian Bitcoin ETF units, and I managed to convince him to buy the same Canadian amount of sats on ShakePay, which is custody for now, just to compare the performance. I got him listening to your podcast as well. Well, hello out there. And he wanted me to let you know about his experiment. I also fixed my Oak reoccurring boost. Oh, it's that Bob. Good, Bob. I see Bob B. Yes. He says, I also fixed my reoccurring boost by pushing sats back to my side of the channel. Ho ho! Although uh, he's using Bolts and Albi. Good for another few months on my quote subscription. Well, thank you, Bob. We appreciate that. Yeah, Good thank job. You so much. I hope you're enjoying all of those member benefits. Right. All those perks. Do we, uh, do we use the term orange pilling? Yeah, I think he's orange pilled his friend. Yeah. I guess for me, I don't try to get people to do things because I feel like if it goes well, they'll be sort of happy, but they won't thank you or buy you a beer. And if it goes badly, they'll be angry at you. So, you know, I I don't take the risk now, but good on you for for going out there. I tend to agree just because having been doing this for so long, I agree that's how it's gone. But after the ETF was approved and the price started to drop, I did I did contact mom. And I'm like, mom, there's no pressure and I'll never bring this up again. But I think this is a fantastic time if you wanted to buy a little Bitcoin at a good price. I think the price will probably go up as the year goes on. And I just want you to know it's going down right now because of, uh, you know, this big news event happened and that's it. And I won't, I won't push it any further, but I just, I felt like, I feel like such a jerk if there was some good gains in a few years and I didn't tell mom ahead of time. So I had to give mom a heads up. But outside of that, I have not for a while really said anything about it to any friends or family. Thank you, Bob. Good job. Thank you so much, Bob. And Ulysses boosts in 2000 sats with the question, how come you don't post the podcast on Spotify? And I think the answer is, I think Spotify puts in dynamically inserted ads in whatever's on their platform. So I don't consent to that. Yeah, how does that work? How does that? Yeah, also Spotify wants to destroy uh, independent podcasting. Uh, but, you know, I, I also, I, so you can make the same argument about YouTube and I put my videos or my shows on YouTube because it's... Our listenership reflects the, the lack of YouTube engagement and, and whatnot. I'd like to know what people think if we should publish in Spotify. I mean, curious to know. User 58 comes in with 10,000 sats using Fountain. Says, I'm not very happy to be using a custodial Fountain wallet to boost, but I am happy to send value for such a wonderful podcast. I love your economic analysis. It's what got me to take Bitcoin seriously. Well, thank you, user 58. You can set your uh, user profile name in Fountain. I think also you could look at maybe going Breeze. Breeze would be a uh, self-custody way to boost in. Fountain, I think, is probably the most straightforward, though. Well, the thing about Breeze is it's going to turn your phone into a... Yeah, a little heater. <laughs> yeah, a little heater. It's nice but in the al- winter, though. But also, Breeze will open a channel to you, I think, or they'll help you open a channel sometime. But if you don't use it consistently, then they'll close the channel. And I think when they close the channel, you have to claim those funds. Yeah, you'd, you'd have to keep boosting consistently, you know, just to make sure that didn't happen. You'd want to boost on the regular. The reason why Breeze gets mentioned, though, is because you need something that can read the podcasting 2.0 feed. You need something that reads the RSS feed to get all the lightning note information and the splits. Breeze does that. Not a lot does that. For a hot minute, 
before Fountain 1.0, Fountain did that through their web app and then would just generate a QR code. So you could use Zeus, you could use Strike, you could use Cash App, you could use anything that scans a QR code. Nobody else does this in podcasting 2.0. I don't understand why. And now Fountain doesn't do it either. And I think that would have been a big breakthrough. If we could do that on the JB website somehow, I'd totally do it. Because then you just use like Zeus, you know, use whatever you want. It doesn't have to read the RSS feed because the web app is figuring all that out. Uh, But we still appreciate you boosting in 58 and uh, glad you're uh, along for the journey. Thank you, everybody. We had six boosters with 110,919 sats. Oh, almost to 111 sats. But thank you, everybody. Appreciate that value. If you got some value out of the pod, please do consider supporting with a boost. You know how much it means to us. And of course, it uh, keeps us, I would say, fired up. We love these messages. It's a good way to kind of wrap up the show because we get a chance to talk with you guys. Like It gives us like that moment to connect. And that's super valuable for us too as creators. So thank you, everybody who boosts in. Appreciate you. This has been the Bitcoin Dad Pod recorded on January 26, 2024. I've been your Bitcoin Dad, and I'm here remotely as always with... It's me. It's Chris. Thanks for joining us, everybody. See you next time.